Hello, my name is Tom Stewart. And this is Riley McDonald. Welcome to Hammer Time. A new fangled podcast for old fangled horror. Where today we're going to be discussing the 1971 film Hands of the Ripper, a patently ludicrous film about the ghost of Jack the Ripper that ends up possessing his traumatized daughter. <laughs> I know what you mean there, Tom. This is a ridiculous film. We all know that Jack the Ripper is really the Comte de Saint-Germain, and his origin begins not in London, but we have to go back to the 1750s in the Black Woods of Bavaria at a sinister meeting of the Rosicrucians and the Illuminati. Where are the Knights Templars? December 22nd, 1967. Now, Riley, while I am incredibly flattered that you've watched all of my YouTube documentaries on this subject... I found your loose change, Tom. I think that we better talk about this movie. If you insist. <laughs> so what is this film about, Tom? All right, I'm going to try desperately not to laugh as I recount this absolutely ridiculous plot. So this film is set in London in 1903, uh, and the film follows a young girl named Anna who, unbeknownst to the city, is Jack the Ripper's traumatized daughter. And she's left as an orphan, and she ends up after a grisly murder in the care of psychoanalyst Dr. John Pritchard. Pritchard immediately recognizes that she is responsible for at least one murder, but interested in her aberrant psychology, he commits to observing her actions rather than informing the police. He doesn't waver from this decision even as he witnesses her increasing dissociative states and as the bodies continue to pile up. You held it together there, Tom. Thank you. Uh, so I think we can both agree. This was a great movie. <laughs> this was not at all. This is going to be an interesting podcast because Riley and I often agree about... Everything. Everything. Tweedledee and Tweedledum are not actually agreeing on the movie this time. So we're going to try to hash things out and hopefully it's not going to come to blows. I don't know, man. Like, I guess... So you're, you're on the... Let's just make the battle lines. <laughs> you don't think this is a good movie? No, I think that this could have been a good movie, but that there are a number of really telling missteps. And I think that this is indicative of a time when Hammer is really losing its grip on the marketplace. So um, as we said at the beginning, this movie's from 1971. It is the first 70s Hammer movie we've tackled so far. And unlike... Plague of the Zombies, which was our first 1960s Hammer movie, where we didn't really comment on any major differences from the stuff from the 50s. This movie, I think, is substantially different in terms of uh, style and tone. Yeah, in lieu of any actual interesting mining developments, we've decided to give you something that's actually pertinent to Hammer and what they were doing. I mean, I still want an update on the prices of tin and arsenic at the time of this movie, but we can stick that at the end. Just watch our Twitter account. Um, so from the late 60s to where we are now in the early 70s, Hammer undergoes a pretty substantial change. Bray Studios, where they filmed all of the movies we've discussed so far, except again, of course, Woman in Black, is sold and they move to Elstree Studios uh, in Hertfordshire. So that brings a big change into how uh, their films look. And you can tell there's a noticeable change in how these movies look, particularly with this one. This is a very beautiful film. Yes, that's something we'll definitely talk about more. But there's larger factors at play too here for Hammer. American financing kind of drops off. I think that has to do largely with the fact that Hammer is just not that attractive a brand anymore. American movies in the wake of new Hollywood movies like Bonnie and Clyde from 1967 
or The Wild Bunch from 1969, or movies that came out the year of Hands of the Ripper, like The French Connection, have this kind of violence and sexual liberation that make the Hammer films look quaint by comparison. Yeah, I would agree with that. You just have to think about The Exorcist, which comes out only two years after this film, 1973. Um, And that is a substantially more horrific film than this one is. And furthermore, uh, Hammer itself, which uh, is getting kind of long in the tooth or long in the fang, shall we say. Um, I think that'd be funny. Yup. Had most of their talent leave them at this point. Um, Jimmy Sangster retires. John Gilling is gone. Terrence Fisher, probably their most reliable director, is pretty much out of the picture at this point. Michael Carreras takes over basically running the studio for his father, James Carreras. A lot of the old hands at Hammer are no longer steering the ship, and it's up to this sort of newer crowd. But in a way, this is not necessarily a bad thing, because it it, it brings some new blood into the rather staid Hammer uh, brand, which at this point was basically coasting off of its Dracula and Frankenstein sequels. Yeah, that's a really good point. We're not trying to say that this studio was completely emptied out of its talent. In fact, there were some really talented people coming in. Michael Carreras was really focused on restoring Hammer to its original glory, and pushing gothic as the way in which to do that but it was really ida young the producer who was able to break down how they might go about doing that and how that might proceed ada young is uh, a person who has a very strong hand in the creation of this movie and i think this is pretty much the last movie she works on unfortunately and then she kind of is pushed out in favor of the more how shall we put this lascivious elements that come to characterize the Hammer movies of the 1970s. One thing that's immediately noticeable about this movie is how violent it is in comparison to things like Dracula, Frankenstein, uh, even Plague of the Zombies. This movie has so much blood and gore in it in comparison to these movies. Um, and it's part. It's because of the uh, relaxation of the British censors. They weren't quite as zealous as they had been in the 50s and 60s. And Hammer took full advantage of this fact and just kind of threw in as much uh, like violence and blood as they could. And this is really indicative of their declining grip on the market. It's a desperate act to try to sensationalize and titillate a story that ultimately is a little bit slow, but it is extremely gory to the extent that there's a bit of a turnaround here. We've always talked about the British censors being the ones that were so much more tame compared to the American censors, but it's actually the Americans who censored this movie when it went overseas and took out 16 seconds. The British left it pretty much alone. So um, let's stop dancing around it and just get into it. I think we agree that this movie is great. I don't know how to respond to that. With an assent. (laughs) Due to my oath as an ethical podcaster, I'm not actually able to uh, assent to that because it's patently false. Are you suggesting that we actually have, for the first time ever, a difference of opinion? Ladies and gentlemen, I'm really sorry, but we're going to actually have to cancel this podcast from now on. Um, We just can't continue. If we can't come to a concourse. No, I, I mean, there, there is clearly no... There's no precedent for this. Any negotiation must be based on shared values and at least some acknowledgement of each other's place. I find myself completely incapable of doing that. Okay, so 
how does this movie fail for you? Because I think I genuinely think that this is a solid horror film and a respectable uh, entry into Hammer Cannon. I don't think it's the best one I've ever watched, but I would put it up there. Listen, I don't want to get on to a tirade here, but I think that there are... Oh, uh, Dennis Miller called and he's suing me. <laughs> but I think that if you begin with the plot premises that there is a daughter to Jack the Ripper and she is being possessed in order to kill people by the spirit of Jack the Ripper, that is innately such an exploitation comedic silly idea that it feels like a misstep to as this film does try to elevate it with psychoanalysis and gorgeous shots just play into the silliness of it make it a comedy horror film rather than an attempt at a straight-up horror film Uh, i don't know i mean like i understand what you're saying that this is a very campy idea but i actually think that i think that it's kind of admirable that they don't lean into the to the obviously campy elements of telling such a story in a way that like the James Spader movie Jack's Back from 1988 does. And I suppose I am being a bit hypocritical here because I at once think that this movie is too solemn and too silly. There are these moments in this film where people die and it almost seems comedic. I was laughing at this film repeatedly when when, for example, Anna kills her pimp who is taking care of her, it's an extremely gory scene. She's run right through with a hot poker, but when we actually see her, she's completely paralyzed and silent and then makes this hilarious death groan and slumps. There's another scene where Dr. Pritchard is run, spoilers, right through with a sword and we see him take two aspirin and then just go across town slumped over like a corpse in his carriage, showing up in scenes with a cadaverous can-do attitude. Tom's tickled enjoyment of wounded and dying bodies notwithstanding. Mostly just the misery of other people. So one of the things I wanted to uh, foreground in my uh, in my full-throated defense of this movie <laughs> is that this is the best-looking Hammer film we've watched to date. I think this is absolutely stunning how well shot and composed it is and how the the visual language of this movie helps to convey the story and the themes of this movie so uh can you give an example of that i'm glad you asked (laughs) this happens very early on in the movie and i think it establishes the kind of almost go for broke stylistics of this movie we have a murder take place and Dr. Pritchard, who is outside the house, witnesses, he knows something's going wrong. He hears a scream and he rushes inside and he opens the door to the room where he believes the murder's taken place. And it's this phenomenally well-composed shot. It's, it's a Dutch angle. Always the mark of a good film. And in the immediate foreground is the landlady of this house. Dr. Pritchard is standing in the middle ground and in the background is Anne, who is sort of crumpled up on the floor. And it's, it holds in this shot, this, this very comic book looking shot in its in terms of how strikingly stylized it is. And then the door swings shut and we see that the landlady has actually been stabbed and is being held uh, skewered to the door. And when the door closes, we see that the knife is stuck through the door and there's blood running down it and then she sort of collapses and i think that that's just such a a a complicated and visually interesting looking shot 
to me, that's just, it's so well composed and that helps to tell this story. Yeah, okay, I would actually agree with you on this point in the sense that it is definitely the most gorgeous Hammer movie that we've seen to date um, and certainly the most competent. Some of them have ranged towards the incompetent in terms of how they set up their shots. Another example of this, I think, would be their use of deep focus. You're very much getting into that with the foreground, midground, and and background characters in that scene and how that looks like a, it's so compressed that it's like a comic book panel. There's another moment where there's a great cut where we know that Dr. Pritchard is going up to a room to take care of a dead body that Anna has left in her room, Dolly the maid, um, who is lying in a bathtub full of blood, and rather than showing him scrubbing this up, we cut to a shot of a darkened room with Dr. Pritchard in the absolute background, opening up the curtains to let the morning sun into the room, and in the immediate foreground we see that bath emptied. And it's such a wonderful way to tell a story with one deep focus shot. You're right, this is extremely competent. The production values of this movie have just such a sterling quality to it that we don't normally see in these Hammer movies. And another scene that I think works extremely well is our first post-credits scene, which is the seance. And again, the camera work is great. It's this revolving shot of all these characters sitting around the table, and it's lit by a fireplace, and it really heightens the shadows on the faces of each character in the room as the camera sort of relentlessly spins around and occasionally will cut away to Anna who is providing the voice of the seeming ghosts that are being summoned by this medium and she's behind this uh, she's in another room speaking through this golden grate and it just everything about this scene the, the setting the lighting the camera work is just so extremely expert that it elevates this movie. And I think that the competence of these production values, the fabulous cinematography by Kenneth Talbot, the excellent direction by the usually rather uneven Peter Sazdy, the excellent character acting by Eric Porter, who plays Dr. John Pritchard, and Angarad Reese, who plays Anna, this is all a sign of a really competent producer behind the screens, Ada Young, who was able to bring this team together. I just personally wish that this level of competence was around when they were writing the script. Trust a former actor to complain about the script as the failure. Thou cuttest me to the quick. Ignoring that deep cut, I think this is a movie that has really great pacing for the first 20 minutes, and then the story just completely drops off. And I think that it comes from a central weakness, which is that it's trying to juggle a very fashionable plot in horror in the 1970s, which was this idea that the horror could be psychoanalytically explained or it could be supernaturally explained. And we see this right up to modern day in our horror films. There's quite often a kind of Freudian possibility where it turns out, oh, it's not just that somebody's sleepwalking or got a guilty conscience. It is actually a demon. Nowadays, we can think of Sinister or The Conjuring. Back then, you could think of uh, The Haunting, Rosemary's Baby, Repulsion. These would all be examples of this. And this movie attempts to balance these two. Anna may be traumatized by what she saw as a two-year-old, which was Jack the Ripper, her father, killing her mother in front of the fireplace. This is a pattern that gets played out throughout the movie and 
And when she is triggered by this trauma, that's when she ends up killing people. At the same time, there is a very strong supernatural emphasis where she ends up having her hands replaced by hands of the Ripper, title thus being explained, whenever she kills oh, somebody. Oh, Tom. Oh, you're welcome. I just wanted to make sure that that was clear to you. Now, who is this Ripper? <laughs> uh, it's uh, actually Rip Torn. Oh, no, that would be that would be a scary movie. Like, you cannot predict what that guy is going to do next. (laughs) (laughs) And ultimately, these horror movies always end up siding with, oh, it turns out she's possessed, she's not crazy. I just don't think that this movie properly sets out its rules or what it's trying to say with this contrast, or ultimately resolves these two things that it's got going in the air. It's always with the rules with you. If if a movie, like... A movie can't ever just be weird and ambient. It has to be like, okay, okay, guys, you can, a ghost can't pass the color red. You would love the movie Pulse. Um, <laughs> See, but I don't, I don't really agree with that. I think that they're I live by a different credo. I'm all about no rules, just right. Yeah, I noticed that you had that translated into Latin and added to your family crest. But ultimately, I wouldn't agree with that because there are movies that I do like that have no rules whatsoever. Um. The silence says more than words ever could, Tom. <laughs> Resolution, uh, Dark Water, Twin Peaks. These would all be really good examples of a more dreamlike sense of horror. And I actually really like that. Brian Evenson is a great writer of short stories for this, for this very reason. And I really enjoy him. But I don't think this is on the same caliber. And I think one of the reasons is that you have to be very strict when you are creating these more dreamlike horrors that you are creating a fully realized world and i don't think that this movie ends up doing that what what i find refreshing about this movie is that in a lot of horror from around this time like to take one of your examples rosemary's baby is rosemary crazy or is she carrying the child of the devil the movie ends up unambiguously resolving that in favor of she is carrying the antichrist This movie, to me, never resolves it. It could be either that Anna is just traumatized and is kind of lashing out whenever um, she's triggered, or it could be that she is being possessed by the ghost of Jack the Ripper, or it could be both. The movie's never clear on that, and I find that's where it gets really interesting. For example, in the last scene, there's this tense scene where she... Tense would be a charitable term for this scene. This uh, edge-of-your-seat pulse-pounding thrill ride of a scene where Anna... Yeah, I actually bought one seat, Laura, but I ended up using the one beside me as well to stretch out and lie down. Can I finish? <laughs> Thank you. So Anna has taken Laura, who is the fiancé of Dr. Pritchard's son, who looks exactly like Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah, he's Edgar Allan Poe lookalike 1903. That doesn't make any sense. Mr. Edgar Allan Poe lookalike 1903. Oh, okay. So Anna takes Laura... Or I guess it's the other way around. Anna is taken by Laura to St. Paul's Cathedral in London. Laura, it should be said, is blind. Laura takes Anna to the top of the cathedral where Anna is about to kill the blind woman, Laura. And she's getting like this ghostly voice is speaking to her and telling her things. But the information it's telling her is is wrong. The uh, This voice is telling her that Dr. Pritchard is dead, but we know he's not. We, we're seeing him travel to the cathedral. So that would seem to suggest that this is all just her her broken psyche. But then we get shots of Anna, you know, attacking Laura, and then the image of the Ripper is superimposed over her. 
as though we are supposed to see that this is the ghost of the Ripper. So the movie never attempts to resolve this scenario. And I think that that is really where its horror excels. It doesn't try to pathologize or or give us a clear cause and effect. It gives us basically two different ideas that when you think it's going to go one way, it goes the other way. So Dr. Pritchard starts out by saying like he doesn't believe in this stuff. He thinks it's he doesn't believe in possession. He thinks it's all nonsense. But by the end of the movie, he becomes convinced that Anna is possessed by the spirit of the Ripper. Yeah, and I agree with you that this would be interesting if they just kept both balls in the air and left it up to you to decide and put the clues together. But the problem is that there is actually a character who openly comments and says that her body physically transforms, becomes scarred for a moment, and her hands are replaced by Jack the Ripper's hands, oddly enough, when she murders her first victim, which is her pimp, who also happens to be the person who is leading the seance very early on in the movie. And so we have outside evidence that there is a transformation, that it's also psychological. I suppose ultimately we could say that it's when she is kind of triggered and has this traumatic moment that she is dissociative and is able to have the spirit come in and inhabit her, but that's just not a very good idea for a plot. Yeah, I think it ultimately comes down to taste. And I think that that its willingness to kind of run back and forth between its supposedly established rules actually works in its favor to make this more unsettling. Whereas I know for you, it, it fails do, because it, it seems like it's constantly contradicting itself. Yeah, I think ultimately, if it was constantly contradicting itself, but also capably rendered as a narrative, that would be perfectly fine for me. But there's a difference between a concept of ambiguity and its actual follow-through in this script. Okay, so aside from the uh, cinematography and production, which we can agree is, is excellent, is there anything about this movie you found worthwhile? Actually, surprisingly, yeah. Uh, this movie throws around the name Freud a good deal and claims to be staging some psychoanalysis that never actually gets off the ground. This film has less than a high school understanding of Freud, but if we take it at its word and actually look at how it's portraying trauma, there might be some interesting stuff there. Trauma theory is a whole heavily debated area of philosophy, literary criticism, psychotherapy. There is a lot going on there, and it's not something we can really talk about in the space of a podcast. But there is a famous book that came out quite a while ago called Unclaimed Experience by Kathy Carruth. And there's a really interesting quote in the introduction, you can tell how much research I did for this episode, uh, that begins with, Trauma is not locatable in the simple, violent, or original event in an individual's past, but rather in the way that its very unassimilated nature, the way it is precisely not known in the first instance, returns to haunt the survivor later on. And so quite often when you talk about trauma theory in a literary classroom for an undergrad, you're going to be talking about how certain events are restaged over the course of a text over and over and over again. How trauma causes you to burden forward, relive the originary event, to carry it into the future and see it all the time. And the way that that trigger works in this film maps onto that really accurately, actually. Anna is consistently triggered, shall we say, to have her traumatic, violent outburst 
by two things. One, seeing something shiny, which reminds her of the brass fireplace she looked away to instead of observing the death of her mother, and a kiss on the cheek, which her father, Jack the Ripper, gives her to try to console her in that moment. And this film re really interestingly restages this as it goes through, and it's always underlining how Anna's body is so casually claimed by other people, whether it be her pimp or another woman who adopts her to sell into prostitution halfway through the film, Dr. John Pritchard, who is using her to kind of restage his affection for his wife. He dresses her up in his wife's clothes. He ends up kissing her full on the lips to trigger her final outburst. A member of parliament who pays her pimp in order to have sex with her consistently. Was it, was it George Clinton? I couldn't handle that. I'm not even addressing Ban that. Ban parliament? So yeah, in that sense, there could be a feminist reading of how consistently... So it could be almost that the Ripper possession story is a way of making gothic these other more mundane, violent possessions of this uh, woman's body. where uh, Which seemed at that time, even in the 1970s, so common and everyday. And we're only now starting to question them. So uh, I have persuasively argued that uh, it is an intellectual taught thriller. I'm glad we come to a conclusive agreement. So, Tom, uh, recommendations time, and let's do favorite Jack the Ripper movie. Why don't I go first? I am going to pick the 1979 sci-fi kind of horror kind of movie, Time After Time, directed by Nicholas Meyer, starring Malcolm McDowell as H.G. Wells, who builds a time machine, that is stolen by Jack the Ripper, played by David Warner, and they go into the future to uh, present day 1979 New York and are wowed by the crazy future world they end up in. It's very silly, but I saw it when I was young and I have tons of affection for it. It's not scary, but you've got McDowell and Warner, who are both really good actors. Mary Steenburgen's in it as well. It's a pretty, it's a pretty solid movie, I would say. So to break the illusion... I knew that I was going to have to recommend a Jack the Ripper movie for this episode, and I ended up watching From Hell, hoping to recommend that one, because I love the comic so much. I cannot in good conscience recommend that movie. That is a, ooh boy, that is a terrible movie. It's not no good. In lieu of that, and keeping with my grumpy old man, I hate movies stance for this episode, I'm going to go with just read the graphic novel From Hell by Alan Moore and Eddie Campbell. That is probably the best Jack the Ripper text you're going to come across. That is an immensely well-researched, structured, drawn piece of art. And I think for anybody who really likes gothic horror, that is going to please you way more than almost any of the Jack the Ripper movies out there. Uh, so that will do it for this week, uh, this week's episode of Hammer Time. Please join us next time where we return to our bete noir. <laughs> The Curse of the Werewolf. We are getting back on that wolf. We are putting the silver bullet in that movie. And a new moon will rise. So until that time, uh, again, check us out on our social media platforms if you'd like. Find us on Facebook at the Hammer Time Horror Facebook fan page. We are on Twitter at Hammer Time Cast. And we're on Tumblr at hammertimehorror.tumblr.com. So if you have questions, comments, concerns, if you... Uh, want to recommend a movie that we tackle next uh please feel free we'd love to hear from you guys and if you enjoyed this episode and want to see us rise in the itunes rankings please go to our itunes page and leave us uh, a comment give us a few stars in rating that would be absolutely fabulous and we would very much appreciate it 
So until next time. My name's Tom Stewart. And this is Riley McDonald. Thanks for listening. Now, see, the problem with all of this is that we all know that it's the Rosicrucians that ended up giving rise to Jack the Ripper. So did they, they forged the magic bullet, right? No, the time aliens from Roswell ended up forging the magic bullet back in 1752. But, so they're roughly then contemporaneous with the uh, Illuminati. So my question is, how did they get people to believe in Jack the Ripper before chemtrails were a thing? That's an excellent question. Could it be that chemtrails now are so potent they ripple through time itself. Or the possibility that they invented airplanes to explain the chemtrails that were always there. Why is the sky blue? Chemtrail saturation. It's right there, sheeple. Open your eyes. But don't open the eye of Providence. I would strongly suggest you do not open the eye of Providence. Oh, my friend, you don't actually believe in the Illuminati. The Illuminati are a front for the Freemasons. The Freemasons are a front for the Knights Templar. Wait, okay, so what are the Knights Templar a front for? What if all these conspiracies are just a conspiracy? to keep us from finding out the real truth, that the world is just a chaotic ball of contingencies and unplanned events and nobody has control over anything and it's pure chaos. Yeah, no, I've got a cork board over here that explains all of this. Oh.